Hi, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of the fall 2021 lineup of the Criminology Academy podcast, where we are criminally academic. My name is Jen Toslieb. And I'm Jose Sanchez. And today we are excited to have Professor Jean McGloin on the podcast, where we will be talking with her about collective crime and how the group or a group influences the decision to engage in criminal activity, criminal behavior. Jean McGloin is currently a professor in the Department of Criminology and Criminal Justice at the University of Maryland and Associate Dean of Research and Graduate Education in the College of Behavioral and Social Sciences. She received her PhD in criminal justice from Rutgers University in 2004, where her dissertation focused on street gangs in New York, New Jersey. Dr. McGloin's research interests include peer influence, co-offending, and collective behavior. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jean. We really appreciate you being here My with pleasure, us. My pleasure, but, but you failed to introduce the most exciting person on this podcast today. So, Yeah, so... I'm watching my kid right now, so just an <laughs> FYI for everybody, if you hear some groaning, complaining, or just general non-intelligible chatting, it's the Crime the Academy baby. What's nice is that when he's on the edges, his face gets blurred, so it's like you're one of those celebrities who doesn't want your kid showing up in OK Magazine or People, so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, he's a special guest for today. Yes. I love it. All right. So a brief overview of what we're going to be talking about today. First, we're just going to start with some general questions about collective behavior and offending in a group. And then from there, we're going to actually go into kind of a trio of papers that have stemmed off of each other about the development of a theory of collective criminal behavior. So, Jose, I will let you get us started. Okay, so as per usual, we're going to start off with a pretty general question. And so, Gene, when we use the term collective behavior, what exactly are we referring to? So this is interesting. This is your lead off question because it's a very simple question, but the answer is a little bit complicated. And it would be something that we could get into more deeply if we, well, you guys are, you know, in programs that include sociology. I am in no way a sociologist, right? So I think it's helpful for us just to have a brief sense of what it means and then specifically what it means with regard to criminology, right? So it's interesting because there's been some definitional debates around this issue. There's been discussions around the borders of what constitutes collective behavior and what doesn't. I mean, Bloomer bemoaned this back in the 1950s and scholars have continued over time to kind of discuss what are the boundaries of this term. Now, some scholars and some researchers just sort of dive in and don't even define it. Like a lot of the work, if you were to read contemporary work in collective behavior or collective action, they don't take the time to define what we mean by that, right? They sort of have this sense that there's an agreed upon connotation, right? But when it comes to the actual definition, it can get, I don't want to say confusing, it can just get a little bit loose around the edges. So What's interesting is that even McPhail one time argued that we seem better able to explain what collective behavior is not, which is largely like really structured and organized behavior as opposed to what it is. There's an interesting piece by Gary Marks in 1980 where he discusses some of this stuff. And I think that piece holds up still. In the most blunt sense, we can think about collective behavior as group action, right? Just these synonyms, but collective behavior has some assumptions around it. So if we go back to Bloomer, His sort of classic definition of collective behavior really focused on the idea of 
spontaneous action that emerges out of social interaction among non-institutional groups, right? So I'm using some jargon there, but a quote of his is, its characteristic behavior is not an expression of pre-established prescription, but is produced out of a forging process of interaction. So it helps sometimes if we think about examples. So collective behavior would include things like riots or consumer demand for a new product or financial decisions and market behavior or residential migratory changes or public opinion, right? If we're thinking about it in a crime context, we can go down a rabbit hole if we want to. I'd prefer not to do that here, right? We can think about it more simply as group crime, right? So shared criminal behavior co-offending. If we wanted to, we could delve into how the framing, the negotiation, and the ideological processes that are attached to offending can be seen as collective behavior. So think about Becker's piece on becoming a marijuana user. Think about Matza's discussion of drift. Think about social interactionism more broadly, or you know, Sutherland's deeper considerations of differential association. Those sorts of like setting the stage behaviors are also can be seen as collective behavior. If you're interested in that, I would urge you to read some of Ross Matsueda's work. He's done a really good job developing this argument, specifically had a 2006 piece. But for our purposes here today, I think we want to think about collective behavior as group crime that emerges sort of out of non-formal groups, right? I think that's, that's a way that we can think about it. So long answer to a very simple question. Yeah, no, I think that's a great answer and interesting because I think when a lot of people think of collective behavior, and this was true for me as well before, you know, I, I really decided that I wanted to be a criminologist, was we think of things that we see in like the media. So like my example would be like Ocean's Eleven, right? Like the George Clooney movie where you think of like this team of specialized individuals coming together and coming up with like this highly elaborate plan work together. But it's, it doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be that organized, right? No, and a lot of times I think the presumption is that it isn't. Like it's, it's this emergent thing that just happens naturally out of social interactions. So, you know, another, sometimes people include social movements, broader social movements as a form of collective behavior. You know, early on discussions of collective behavior, this idea of sort of crowd behavior, the notion was that you lost your sense of rationality, you lost your sense of individuality, you sort of handed over your behavior to some crowd mentality. As research has gone on, it suggested like that's not what happens, right? But it's just curious because it's a term that multiple disciplines use and multiple scholars and researchers use, but it's similar to street gangs where I don't know that they always mean the same thing, right? Yeah, I feel like that's been a reoccurring theme across our podcast episodes where there's this super simple thing that's really not as simple as it seems or vice versa. But yeah, interesting. So when we're thinking about crime, there's definitely like two silos. So either you're committing crime by yourself or you're committing crime in a group. So how common is like group crime compared to individual crime? Okay. So I'm just going to comment briefly on that silo analogy because I like it because in an incident, it's either a group crime or sort of a group incident or a solo incident, but we have to be careful not to put offenders in those silos. So people yeah. may have preferences for group crime or solo crime, but a lot of people engage in both. But in terms of incidents, yeah, if we think about sort of one or the other, in terms of it's, it's how common it is, I want to mention a few people who sort of argue that it's so common, it's in essence a criminological fact. So 
you know, War's, I think, seminal book on companions in crime, he leveraged that phrase and he said that if criminologists truly seek full knowledge of companions in crime, you cannot simply study the mechanisms of deviant peer influence. You have to also understand the structure and processes of co-offending. More than a century ago, and I've used this quote in several papers, Breckenridge and Abbott said, and I'm quoting here, there is scarcely a type of delinquent boy who's not associated with others in his wrongdoing. And Joan McCord and colleagues, they argue that co-offending is an inherent part of delinquency, right? It's not incidental. It is, it is something that is meaningful and it is something that is sort of standard. Now, the actual estimates of, you know, co-offending compared to solo offending, those vary both across and within studies. That was observed, I think, really nicely by Andreessen and Felsen. But just to give you some sense, so Sean McKay and their, you know, essential work for the discipline. They found that about 80% of juveniles seen in Cook County Juvenile Court were suspected of offending with accomplices. Al Reese, who I think really, I think pushed co-offending literature, like he is the change point when it comes to talking about group crime, when it comes to talking about co-offending. For decades, we didn't really pay much explicit attention to it. And then in a pair of pieces in 1986 and 1988, and then with another piece in 1991 with David Farrington, he basically demanded that the discipline pay attention to it. And in his 86 piece, he basically demonstrated that group nature of crime becomes even more apparent when you consider the individual rather than the incident as the unit of analysis. So for example, he did an incident level analysis that in 1984, approximately half of the robbery victimizations in the US were committed by two or more people. At the individual level, however, nearly three quarters of people who, who had engaged in robbery offended with at least one other person. Right. So to connect it back to this earlier discussion of what is collective behavior, I also want to highlight something that Reese and Farrington said in 1991. They said that most of the people who offend with others are not members of large or highly structured groups. Instead, it's delinquent offenses are generally committed by two or three individuals who are only loosely associated with one another. Right. So it's very frequent. It's very common. It does vary across crime types. It does vary across age. We, you know, several studies suggest that we're much more likely to see it during the juvenile years. I do want to highlight that there are some researchers who disagree with this, namely Stolzenberg and D'Alessio. They had a piece in 2008 where they basically took a counter perspective and said, we actually think it's been overstated. There were some responses to that. Some people don't agree, but I think it's important to acknowledge that you know, the vast majority highlight how frequent and prevalent it is to see co-offending, but there are some scholars who are like, I think maybe we've overstated it. So given its frequency or, you know, we believe it to be so frequent, but what about this type of collective behavior or collective crime? What makes it unique? Like what is, what is different about this style of crime versus a solo type of offense? One of the ways that we can think about it as being maybe a little bit different are the sorts of things that go into the calculation of risks and costs and benefits, generally speaking, right? So McCarthy and colleagues had this interesting piece in 1998. We're going to talk about it in a little bit and we talk about what are some theories of co-offending, right? But they highlighted that actually co-offending can be pretty risky if you think about it from certain perspectives. So for instance, when you have accomplices, it can all fall to crap, right? Like, you know, if you're robbing someone with other people, that person can escalate the offense and all of a sudden it becomes more dangerous and violent than you intended. That person can bail on you halfway through and now all of a sudden there's, there's an issue. That person can steal the money that you get and now you're left with nothing after having committed the crime. That person can narc on you, you know, if they get caught and you don't. So it has these additional risks, right? 
And there's some research that suggests that we have something called a group hazard hypothesis, which is when you have more people engaged in an act, it's more likely to come to the attention of police, right? So people have talked about those risks because for some people who do work in rational choice, they think it's interesting that people decide to take on accomplices because it's not something that is inherently lightens the load necessarily, mm -hmm. right? But there are also some perspectives that there may be benefits to co-offending. So some examples would be the perceived responsibility goes down, probably goes down because it's not just you who's engaging in the act. Maybe your perceived sense of how wrong it is or your perceived sense that other people are going to be disappointed in you goes down because it's not just you, you're part of a group, right? You can sort of spread out blame or you can have diffusion of responsibility or anonymity. There may be benefits that come along with it too. It can be more exciting. You can have a greater rush because you're doing something with other people. You can have social rewards of feeling like you have this inclusion. You feel like you belong. It can also be sometimes that maybe there's a risk of, of not co-offending because now all of a sudden you're, you're not doing what everyone else is doing, right? Maybe you're going to get excluded or people are going to look at you in a different way and not have the same level of, of respect for you. Interestingly, even though we talked about the group hazard hypothesis, there's some suggestions that maybe the perceived sanction risk goes down because, you know, if I'm shoplifting by myself in a store, I might get caught. But if I'm one of, you know, several people who sort of grab and run, the odds that me individually will get caught perceptually might go down, right? So, you know, this is one of those areas where people are using theory to inform why co-offending may be different. They're using sort of logic. They're using what we've gathered from qualitative information when we talk to offenders about what they consider when they actually go about offending. So Wright and Decker's work, other work on process tracing that's really important and insightful. But in terms of empirical commentary on the uniqueness of the decision of co-offending, that is definitely a growing area, not one that we can point to and say, oh, that's been settled. It just makes me think of, so in Boulder, what was it last year? I don't know if they actually called it a riot, but there was like a large gathering of people who were together when they weren't supposed to be because of all of the COVID-19 regulations. And it was like, like all of those things together where the risk went up because there was this huge gathering. So the police came in riot gear and everything, but yet not a lot of people got caught because it was such a massive group, even yeah, with mean, social media and everything like that. Yeah, it's interesting because it's like, you know, all of these things can be true at the same time, right? Yeah. For individuals. But no, I heard about that because that happened when Kyle and I were working on a paper and I was like, well, find a quote, find a quote of one of them saying something like that. So we can end up going with a different it, quote yeah. that, that Zach found from a Stanley Cup a riot. But no, it's interesting, you know, that mm -hmm. you sort of, you can see these bear out. So you understand like why people can logically think about this constellation of risks and costs and benefits. But, you know, we really do need more empirical work to kind of bear that out. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned that we were going to talk about some of the theories. So obviously you and your colleagues have developed, you know, a series of papers that talk about the theory. But before we get into that, can you just talk about or tell our listeners what were some of the primary theories before your papers came out that were explaining, you know, why people engage in collective criminal behavior? Okay, so we can think about this in two categories, right? And this is probably somewhat dependent on the fact that, you know, if Reese is sort of the starting point, if he's the turning point where we start to pay attention to co-offending, and we're talking late to mid 80s, that means that we've had decades before that of criminological theorizing 
where it was not explicitly on co-offending. It wasn't explicitly on group offending. Mm-hmm. Now, there are parts of that that are sort of interwoven in some, I would argue, seminal pieces in the discipline. So if you read Short and Strodbeck, if you read Clifford Shaw's narratives, you know, if you read Matz's pieces, you see themes of co-offending, you see themes of group behavior. It's just there, right? And some people did rely on sort of traditional criminological theories to think about, you know, can we use them to explain co-offending or group crime? So you know, if we were to take the selection perspective, right, the idea that, well, group crime doesn't really mean anything. It's just that offenders end up sort of, you know, coming together in time and space and therefore, you know, or it's just a selection perspective. It could be Gobertson and Hershey's perspective. You know, there are some other arguments to that approach, but, you know, we could use those theories to kind of explain co-offending. We could also appeal to some theories on routine activity. So, you know, Felsen wrote some pieces 2003, 2006, where he kind of portrayed, interestingly enough, he talked about, he gave a spotlight to co-offending. He thought it was important to pay attention to, and he's written some really interesting work in this area. But the way that he portrayed it, and I agree with Van Maastricht here, who talked about this in a 2017 chapter in the Offender Decision-Making Handbook, I think by Oxford, that he really portrays co-offending as incidental to routine activities, right? So you discover potential co-offenders in time and space and convergence spaces. That also sets the stage for engaging in crime. I don't think I'm the only one, but I'm probably one of a handful. I believe that Osgood's routine activities theory is a theory of co-offending, right? If, if you really think about how that process should, should unfold, it should result in group-based behavior, right? The idea is that you derive the motivation for offending while you're in the group in certain situations. And so we can sort of pick up a category of existing criminological theories and figure out like, hey, what can we apply? What do we have to stretch? What do we kind of have to do to make it fit, right? But the other category is theories that were explicitly developed to explain co-offending, right? And that's, there's really two of those, right? The first one is one by McCarthy and colleagues, and that came out in 1998. And then we have Frank Weirman's, he's, I should probably say Weirman, not with the W, <laughs> and his came out in 2003, and his was a social exchange theory. So with McCarthy, which he wrote with Hagen and Cohen, his argument or their argument was that individuals become more risk-seeking and willing to tolerate the inherent uncertainties of group crime when they experience adversity, right? So not surprisingly, they sort of take a rational choice perspective. And in the paper they lay out, we have all these uncertainties, we have all these risks that can be associated with co-offending. So why the hell would offenders take on accomplices? Like what explains their willingness to co-offend, to cooperate, to take on offenders? Because oftentimes it's in relationships where there's not an inherent amount of trust, right? So why would they take that risk? Why would they take that step? And what McCarthy and colleagues argued is that when people are under adverse conditions, and I mean, they talked about serious adversity with their sample. They're talking about hunger. They're talking about lack of safe shelter. You know, pretty pretty serious cases where someone is in need, typically of some kind of financial gain. They argued that people are more likely to accept the possibility that accomplices are inept or untrustworthy because the potential gains are so attractive compared mm-hmm. to their current situation, right? So it's like, They're backed into a corner. And so fine, I'll take on accomplices. I'll take on this uncertainty because if this broadens my opportunities, if this gives me more chances to get out of the crappy circumstance that I'm in, going to do it, right? So it's a very instrumental decision, right? Weirman's is not that different. His is a social exchange theory that also assumes group crime is instrumental, but he viewed it as sort of this exchange of both material and immaterial goods. So material goods would be things like 
we exchange money, we exchange goods, and immaterial goods would be things like we get social approval or we get a respect, that there's some kind of interaction and exchange between accomplices. And not shockingly, because it's an instrumental perspective, when that exchange provides more rewards or gains than costs, then they're going to engage in group crime, right? Now, so in other words, both of those perspectives assume that offenders' choices, whether or not to take on accomplices, whether or not to co-offend, depends on their current needs and the anticipated benefits that co-offenders can provide, right? So it's, it's very much within kind of this rational choice, this instrumental perspective. Now, one thing, and this might serve as a, a segue into, you know, what we're going to talk about next, is that notice what both of those co-offending theories assume. And I don't know that they were explicit about this, but I think it's inherent and implicit. They're assuming that people have decided they're going to offend, and then they decide, do they take on accomplices, right? So it's this kind of two-tiered decision. It's like the presumption is they are already offenders, right? And then the question is, why will they then co-offend? Why will they offend with other people? So they're going to offend, but why offend in this particular way? Some of the stuff that I got into doesn't make, it's a different sort of decision process. It doesn't make that assumption. Okay, well, with that great segue, relaying the foundation, let's get into our next topic, which is some papers that Gene co-authored. And we are taking on three of them today, which is kind of new for us. So Yeah, sorry about that. At least they're all related. <laughs> yeah, nope. Yeah, that's not a problem whatsoever. There were an interesting read. So the first paper was you know, authored by Jean McGloin and Zach Rowan. It's called A Threshold Model of Collective Crime and was published in Criminology in 2015. The second paper was authored by Jean and Cal Thomas, titled Incentives for Collective Deviance, Group Size and Changes in Perceived Risk, Cost and Reward, and was published in Criminology in 2016. And the final paper is a forthcoming article authored by Dean, Kyle Thomas, Zach Rowan, and Jessica Dietzer. Dietzer. Did I say that? Dietzer. <clears throat> I hope so. Watch. She's probably watching this and going, no, it's Dietzer, but I think it's Dietzer. <laughs> She's the paper wonderful. Title, She's excellent. She's a postdoc at Max Planck. So. <laughs> yeah, to Germany, correct? Correct, in Freiburg. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the paper's titled, Can the Group disincentivized offending, considering opt-out threshold and decision reversals. And it is said to be published in the November issue of Criminology, although it is already available on the online version. And so our first question is, what was the inspiration behind this trio of articles? And so what was the gap that you identified and felt that needed to be filled? Okay, so... I should note from the outset, I didn't say like, oh, I want to publish three pieces, right? If I did, that would be really slow to get those three out, right? It was like, you know, you had the idea for the first one, and then the second one just kind of naturally came out of that. And then, you know, you think about it, you give it a little bit of time, and you realize, oh, the third one sort of might might sort of bookend it a little bit, right? But the initial sort of interest in this is something I alluded to earlier, which is that The two aforementioned theories, I want to be clear, they move the dial, right? Like McCarthy and colleagues and Veerman, they deserve, I think, like true kudos for paying attention to co-offending, for getting people to really think about it, 
for putting it into the spotlight. Like we're indebted to them. And I think their theories are excellent. I think they hold a lot of water. You know, I, I'm not of the opinion that one theory is going to win the game, right? You know, multiple theories can, can be true. But it struck me that those theories, because I view them as having implicit assumptions that, you know, offenders make the offending decision and then they decide whether or not to take on accomplices, that they were potentially, and I would say, un- I would say unintentionally, ignoring one of the most compelling features of group crime. And this was articulated by War in Companions in Crime, but he's not the only one to talk about it, surely. He argued, and I'm quoting here, people will commit acts when they are with others that they would never have committed if they had been alone, right? So ideally, a theory about the decision to engage in group crime should be able to explain why individuals who normally may not be motivated to commit crime might choose to co-offend, right? Like, why would they take part in it? And so the spectrum of people who you have to be able to, to catch in the theory should be bigger, right? It's not an offender theory. It's a theory about offending decisions, right? And so you don't just have to capture why would people who would offend decide to co-offend? You have to capture, well, why would people who normally would not offend decide to co-offend, right? And so that just kind of got in me that I felt like this is interesting. We need, we need to explain it. And the reason I was kind of on that kick is because I had been doing some work on co-offending for the years beforehand. I'd been lucky enough to come across some good data sets, lucky enough to have wonderful, you know, co-authors, including, you know, Chris Sullivan, Alex Baccaro, Wendy Stickle, you know, Holly Nguyen, you know, very, very lucky to sort of do some work in that domain. But what was frustrating for me is, you know, I've always trended towards the, as George Kelling would say, the esoteric, right? I like theory. I like trying to understand the why. I like solving puzzles. And that question just kind of got to me because I didn't think that we had adequately thought about it and we had adequately answered it. I think Osgood gets there a little bit, you know, with his unstructured and unsupervised socializing. You know, he explicitly says we, we sort of, we don't believe in this categorical distinction. You know, we, people will offend, people will have various temptations. And so, you know, I think that he was getting there. And and I think I really liked that. And I wanted to see an expansion of that a little bit. And I was doing, you know, I was just reading in different areas. And I was familiar with Granovetter's work, but I was familiar with the weak ties work, right? Mm -hmm. And I think one day I had just given myself, my suspicion is, is that I was going through a phase where I was burned out. And so I just gave myself some room to read. I am in no way equating myself, but I loved this story. I don't know if you guys have heard the story of Lin-Manuel Miranda, where he was burned out from doing In the Heights and he went on vacation and he brought Hamilton, the book with him to read. And because he finally had a break is when he had the idea, right? And so sometimes you just need to give yourself the space to just read and have ideas. You know, I, I recognize there are a lot of people whose goals, you know, are to, to publish a certain book or to publish in a certain journal or to get a certain grant, those are laudable goals. They're important. But for me, I like to just have ideas. I like to, you know, sort of, I think part of being an academic is that you can nerd out and just, you know, be esoteric and you can think about solving puzzles. And so I, I wanted to have an idea and I was reading Granite Better stuff and I came across his threshold piece and reading that piece reminded me of my frustration that I didn't think we had a theory that could really capture that part of group crime. And I thought maybe, maybe they'll still do it, you know, and, and to give, to give Osgood even more credit, you know, Osgood has talked about one of the benefits of criminology being interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary, so we basically get to steal from our friends, you know, we steal from our friends all the time, methodologically, and our analytical models, we also steal from them when it comes 
you know, from theory, like think about Ron Aker stuff, you know, like sort of going through the orchard of psychology and plucking some from Skinner and plucking some from Bandora, who just recently passed away. And, you know, the idea is that we have the benefit of being able to build theories because, you know, for many other disciplines, crime is just one other behavior. For us, it's our primary outcome. And so, you know, I read that piece by Granovetter and I thought, I wonder if this is going to, this could do it. Like this could actually be applicable. This could be interesting, right? So I just started talking about it. You know, at that time, Zach and Kyle were grad students and, you know, talk about being lucky to have Zach, Kyle and Holly, you know, at the same time across the hallway from me to have the opportunity to just brainstorm and talk and discuss ideas. And I just started to become more and more convinced that this theory would be something that the discipline could benefit from that, you know, shining a spotlight and thinking critically about whether or not thresholds or interdependent decision-making could be incorporated into criminological discussions would actually provide added value, would actually move the ball downfield theoretically. So I had the idea that there was a gap. And then I started to have some thoughts about how to fill it merely because I just gave myself time and space to read and be a scholar. And we don't get a lot of that in our, in our job. Mm-hmm. So I advocate for taking those breaks because that's where the ideas may come from. Yeah. And I love the idea of the stealing from your friends. I actually used that in one of my, in my theory comp and went with it. Cause yeah, I think it's really cool. And criminology definitely is interdisciplinary. So, and I liked that you threw that into, I think the first paper you actually like talked about Mm -hmm. that concept. Well, we like to, I mean, it's true because you gotta, I mean, you can't act like, oh, look what I came up with all on my own. Yeah. You know, like, I've definitely had that moment. I think we've all had it where you're like, oh my God, I have this great idea. And then you go to like Google Scholar and you read and stuff. Been and done. Like, Damn it. Someone else has had this idea, right? But, you know, novelty is fine, but sometimes it's more about, well, let's take a step back and think about contribution here. Like, how can we actually expand thinking? How can we actually sort of really think about changing the dialogue? And sometimes novelty doesn't do it, but sometimes recognizing like, hey, we've had this thing that's kind of been around and we haven't really gone deeply into it. So let's see if there's actual, I mean, to me, I approach the first paper as like proof of concept, right? Let's see if this does anything. Let's actually see if this makes sense. Let's put it out there and see if people think that this might actually have utility. Yeah. All right. So with that being said, let's start to dive into these papers. So again, we're going to start with the first one. So the 2015 paper that was co-authored with Zach Rowan. So just to give kind of a brief introduction, this study introduced and provided kind of this preliminary test as Jean, you've mentioned a few times now, of this model of collective behavior, this threshold model that came from an idea from Granovetter. And this was a theoretical framework for understanding the decision to engage in group crime. So again, developed from this idea from Mark Granovetter's threshold models of collective behavior, which just generally is the idea that a person's decision to engage in collective behavior depends on the actions and the decisions of the people surrounding them. Granovetter used rioting as like his primary example. So it has kind of this perfect fit in with criminology in a way. And it could even be about things like voting, which I think is something that you've mentioned in this paper, Jean. And so based off of this idea, you and Zach extended the threshold model to group crime to help account for people who would not engage in crime under normal situations, but would in a group setting. 
So can you just provide a little bit more detail on the threshold model, specifically thinking about like what a threshold specifically is and then how you used Granovetter's idea to translate it into group crime? Sure. And I felt not so bad about stealing from our friends when it came to Granovetter because Granovetter himself stole from his friends because his (laughs) theory is based on Schelling's work, right? Yeah. Thinking about residential migration and basically you know, how does the race of people moving in and out affect people's decisions of whether or not to stay in a neighborhood or move? So it's this sort of like, we're just kind of like (laughs) piggybacking on each other, right? Uh, Or standing on the shoulders of giants, right? So as you mentioned, Jen, the core presumption of the threshold model, like it's, its starting point, the foundation upon which it stands is the idea that behavior is socially interdependent, right? So when you're talking about decisions of whether or not to engage in a behavior to join an act, and he talked in terms of binary acts, like either you join or you don't, right? Mm-hmm. That it's not an independent decision. And the bulk of decision-making theories assume an independent actor, right? And his argument was, no, 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 decisions at least partly depend on the behavior of others. So what he was saying is that people have a threshold at which the behavior, they come to perceive the behavior as having utility, the point at which the benefits outweigh the costs. And at that point, the person will join in the act or act, right? Threshold values range from zero to one. There are going to be some people who don't need other people to act. Like, just out of the gate, they see the behavior as having utility, right? So they would engage in it whether other people did or not. Then you're going to have a range, you know, that goes up to one, which is like, you know, like once 10% of people join in, then I will, or 20% or 30% or 40%, whatever it is. The argument is that there's a distribution of these threshold values across the population and that you'll see all of them observed, although, you know, what it looks like in the constellation of a situation depends on who's there, who's not, and you know, sort of what that distribution looks like in that particular time and space. You can also have threshold values of one, which is I'll do it once everyone else does it, right? So they're like the ultimate, like, you know, I'll let everyone here do it and then finally I'll do it. Now, Granovetter did acknowledge that there are some people in certain circumstances who even once everyone does it, they won't do it, right? So like we can think about those people as being like 1.1s, right? So, you know, because what Granovetter said is that from his point of view, it wasn't like they were enduring, I will never do it no matter what under any circumstance. Because if you change the situation, if you change the behavior, they might engage in that, right? So like, you know, a certain behavior in a certain context, my threshold might be 0.2. In another one, it might be, oh, I'm not doing it, even if everyone else does it, right? And what he thought typically would predict or be related to those threshold values was both individual level factors and situational level factors. So his argument was that you would probably see differences in thresholds across people, but you would also see them within people from situation to situation to situation. So from a crime perspective, you know, my threshold for theft might be one thing, my threshold for fighting might be something else, my threshold for property damage might be something else. And those are very broad categories. So, you know, as you guys probably know, some of Kyle's work recently has really started to look at this idea of like specific attitudes that we really need to think about. What do we think about a situation contextually dependent in a particular situation? So I'm using that broadly, like even within theft, my threshold under one condition might be different from another condition, might be different from another condition. So, but what is universal, even across those variations, is that notice my decision of whether or not to behave is dependent on the behavior of other people, right? And so, and the idea is that even if I'm criminally prone or not criminally prone, generally speaking, I can be picked up by this theory, right? Like I'm somewhere on that threshold spectrum. Now, 
I don't know that Zach and I really extended it. I think we more applied it and tried to make the case that it fit, right? Like I didn't have the sense that we had to stretch it or tweak it or, you know, move it around a whole lot. I just think we had to make the case that like it fit what we knew about co-offending. It made intuitive sense. It made theoretical sense. There was reason to suspect based on literature that this might have validity. It might hold water, but let's lay it out methodically. And then let's think about some ways to test this and see if there's any just baseline support at all for this premise. So this paper also discusses a variety of study types that examine this threshold model, including a, a vignette or like this hypothetical scenario, process pacing, and also simulation studies. Mm-hmm. And a commonality across all three of the publications is the type of study used to examine your research questions, including investigating the threshold model, which you and Zach decided to examine using a hypothetical vignette. So to us, you know, this is pretty cool using vignettes for research is interesting. It's an interesting technique. And one that we actually included in our gang reduction initiative of Denver study um, that I'm a research assistant on. So we did include a vignette. You know, we, we consulted with Kyle on it to make sure right. we're, we're giving we're, Kyle way too much credit in this podcast <laughs> <laughs> yeah. back a little bit. Yeah. So basically, can you explain to us a little more, what is a hypothetical vignette study and why was this the method that you chose to use for your article? Sure. So I'm just going to talk really basically, right? So you'll see if anyone's interested in this, you just want to go into the, arguably the rational choice literature, right? So Ray Paternoster used hypothetical vignettes a lot. And like any methodology, it has its champions, it has its detractors. The best way to view it is to be in really neither camp and recognize that it has its benefits and limits and it fits certain research questions and it doesn't fit other research questions, right? So basically, if you're using hypothetical vignettes, you're presenting subjects with some kind of scenario, and typically you query them on how they would behave in that scenario or other assessments of the situation. You know, you try to give enough contextual information so that it feels realistic, that they can imagine themselves in it. There's literature out there that talks about how do you anchor things to make it realistic? How do you make sure that it resonates with them? And there's recommendations and there's literature that speaks about sort of better ways to craft vignettes and those that are maybe not the best done. You know, I think one of the benefits that people talk about when it comes to using vignettes is that it allows you to measure criminal decisions at the same time, like you're getting the specific perceptions of costs and benefits at the time of the decision with the actual context, as opposed to having some questions or concerns about, well, how far apart are they? How can we trust that like, these are the perceptions or these are your anticipated sense of costs and benefits at the time you're making the decision. So it gives us the chance to do that sort of in in closer time proximity to each other. Another big benefit of using vignettes is that you can experimentally manipulate the situational context, right? So you can actually have experimental studies that use vignettes by, you know, randomly changing certain situational elements and obviously keeping track of, you know, who's getting what kind of scenarios and are you making sure that everyone, you have all the possible scenarios represented. Now, that being said, I think one of the detractions that people often talk about, and understandably so when it comes to vignettes, is you're not observing actual behavior, right? You're capturing intentions to offend. And so there's questions about the extent to which those intentions reflect reality. Like, if I say I would offend, well, would I? Really? 
would I really offend in that circumstance? Or does it correlate to what would be my actual behavior? So you have to be really conscious of whether or not you are measuring some proxy of what you actually want to capture. Now, I argue, and I put this in the papers, that I'm not as concerned about that problem in the context of these papers, because thresholds are intentions, right? Thresholds are intentions to act. They are decisions that are made. So arguably, we should be measuring intentions. And so this gives us a chance to do that. In fact, you know, if you look at some work by Granovetter, if you look at even Schelling himself, they've acknowledged that one of the most straightforward ways to gather information about thresholds at which behavioral intentions shift is to simply present respondents with a scenario that describe an opportunity and query them about their tipping points. So, you know, I took guidance from the fact that, you know, the people who crafted these initial models thought that simply asking people about their tipping points was the way to go. And the reason they said that is because they argued that observing behavior itself is may not actually be the best way to capture these tipping points because you can't always infer thresholds from patterns of behavior or patterns of people not behaving. So for instance, imagine a person who doesn't participate in collective behavior, right? And they could have a threshold value higher than any portion of the people you act who acted. So imagine you're observing a crowd of 100 people and 60 people act and 40 people don't. You don't know those 40 people what their threshold is. You just know that it's somewhere above 0.6, right? So you're doing some sort of crude censoring of trying to figure out where they fall in that particular threshold. Now let's take the people who did act. Well, what if when they made their decision between them making the decision and when they actually acted, several other people joined too. So maybe you're assuming their threshold is you know, 0.45, but it was actually 0.35. But by the time they acted, like 10 other people had joined at the same time. So there's some issues around messiness of inferring. Now, arguably, you should be measuring both, right? Like that would be an ideal situation. You're capturing both intentions and then you're observing the behavior. You know, if you can figure out how to do that effectively, like great, you know, I mean, we can, we can come up with ideas, but to actually do it in real time practically gets really challenging. And so for the purposes of these papers, knowing that the core focus is on the intention, the core focus is where does the utility change, right? Like where does that threshold, that tipping point occur? We just wanted to ask people. And sometimes I think we get a little skeptical of something that straightforward, like we'll just ask. But, you know, I, I sort of look to Schelling and to Granovetter that they advocated for that approach. You know, as I mentioned, you know, in the paper and you discussed here, Jose, like some other examples could be process tracing, you know, where you basically you have offenders who are going through offending decisions, articulate out loud what they're thinking and what they're what they're considering that gets challenging in situations of spontaneous action. Like think about our discussion of collective behavior. If it's emergent phenomenon at a social interaction, are you just going to like what happened upon a riot or happen upon a group criminal incident? It could happen, you know, or, or you could try to get into those circumstances that are more organized, but it has its challenges. I do think there's a lot of promise with agent-based simulation modeling, but a lot of times you need theoretical knowledge to figure out how do I feed those models? How do I structure those models? And I felt like we're still in the nascent stages of understanding the fundamentals of decision-making when it comes to co-offending. So we're going to need agent-based modeling, but I feel like right now, like it needs to be complemented by just some direct information from individuals. Well, yeah, I love vignettes. They're really interesting. And I think you have what, eight, eight different 
types of scenarios in this paper, which just seems like quite a few. Sure. Um, we should have read the paper more closely. Yeah. No, I'm pretty sure it's eight. I think <laughs> I just read it yesterday. So pretty sure. Interesting. Um, so not this paper, but the next paper. So remind me of that, of how many scenarios we had. Bring that up when we get to the paper with Kyle. Okay. All right. So the analysis for this paper, the focus was really on whether like these individual level and situational factors could actually shape respondent self-reported thresholds. So just a little bit more specifically, do friends, in-group versus out-group, crime type, impulsivity, normative beliefs, I think that was all of them, do those different things impact thresholds or the number of people someone would need to have already engaging in the act before they would. Right. Can you give us a rundown of like the core findings from this article? I'll I'll go brief. To me, I think, you know, I often think the most important findings out of studies is found in the descriptive information. And I would argue that that that's the case here. So one of the things that we found with our subjects is that 40% of our subjects said they would only, they would offend only if others did first. So they were somewhere between that 0.1 and 1.0 spectrum, you know, of that threshold. We had people who had zeros, you know, very few who said I would engage in property damage, I would steal, even if no one else did. We had, you know, the majority, you know, like high 50% said I wouldn't do it at all, right? Which is not shocking. We used a college sample, right? But I found that really interesting that if we had asked these subjects this question in a way that only asked about committing the offense alone, right? If we had taken an asocial point perspective of crime, if we had not considered the idea of offending with other people, we would have missed those 40%, you know, that 40% of people who said, you know, well, I would only do it if other people did it first, right? That's the portion that war talks about, right? And so, you know, we, we were catching those people. And then when we looked at, and I, I don't want to say this is a test of it, it's not, it's, it's more of an example and some very preliminary information, but we found some evidence that at least in this sample, there was a relationship between impulsivity and normative beliefs. So we'd argue that that's sort of your between persons differences, right? With thresholds. And then we also saw some differences within persons based on, you know, sort of situational changes in terms of whether or not the crowd that was with you included your friends and then the crime type as well. So, so it suggested that both person level and situational level differences were related to these threshold values, which was consistent. I mean, again, granted better wasn't talking in terms of criminological theory. He didn't talk about impulsivity. He didn't talk about, you know, other, he did talk about friends because that's broad, right? But his argument was if this model holds, you should see variations across these two units. Yeah. So preliminary support. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) I tend to be, I tend to be cautious, but it certainly, it suggested that we shouldn't boot the theory, right? It, It held promise. It suggested it's worth the conversation. And, you know, it suggested that there might be something here worth pursuing, right? So at the end of this article, you and Zach provided three main recommendations for future research on the theoretical refinement and elaboration of collective crime. And we're going to touch on two of them that we thought were very relevant and can kind of start moving us into the other two papers. So the first one is based on previous research, it was proposed that there may also be an opt-out threshold, right? So we've been talking about opting in, engaging in criminal behavior, but there may also be a threshold where, say, maybe too many people get involved and I no longer want to be involved in the behavior. Mm-hmm. And second is you argue that it is important to be able to understand precisely 
what makes thresholds a tipping point for decision making, especially thinking about the degree to which the behavior of others shifts someone's perception of risk, costs, and rewards, right? And so with those two sort of recommendations or points that, that you guys made, I think we can start moving into your second paper with Kyle. Okay, so the second paper, again, is this 2016 paper authored with Kyle Thomas on incentives for collective deviance, which taps into, again, one of the future recommendations that you talked about in the first paper on perceptions of risks, costs, and rewards. So in this one, there were two different hypothetical vignette experiments, one that was set at a football game and the other one was set at a concert two different locations based off of the universities involved. And using these, both Gina and Kyle investigate the extent to which individuals' anticipated experiences of rewards, informal social costs, and sanction risks are associated with deviance change as a consequence of differences in the number of people involved in the act beforehand. So again, you talk about this numerous times in this paper, it's focusing on like these dynamic changes in perspectives versus static changes or static perceptions. So four main hypotheses in this paper that focus again on these different perceptions of rewards, informal costs, and perceived risks of formal sanctions people would experience depending on whether or not they participated in group crime. So based off of this, how are perceptions of rewards informal costs and risks of formal sanctions expected to change based off of group size. Okay. So I'm going to get into that, but I have to give you a little bit of sort of a a side story here. So when Kyle and I first did this study, we did multiple vignettes within persons. So we did a survey where people answered multiple vignettes, the idea being that we would capture Mm -hmm. within individual change across vignettes, right? Like within individual change of perceptions across vignettes. We're very proud of ourselves. We sent that out for review and we're going to invoke Wayne Osgood here again. And he sent back to us and he said, you know, I love the idea. The problem here is that this is vulnerable to the demand effect. And he was hundred percent right. Like maybe people were changing their, you know, their answers because they sort of started to get at what we were like, okay. they, they understood what we were getting at. Like, even though we randomized the order of the group size, you know, it would be hard for them to guess that we're looking maybe for different answers across group size. And so you don't know if the differences you observe are real or due to what they think like you're looking at. And so they change their answers accordingly. And so this, in my view, was a really great example of the benefits of peer review, right? You know, it was tempting to just be like, oh, whatever, we'll just send the paper somewhere else. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I didn't want to write a paper that I knew that, and neither did Kyle, that we knew you know, if people cited, they might be citing to say, I don't know if we can trust these findings, right? I mean, that can always be the case. Any paper, you know, people may have, you know, be skeptical, they may have issues with it, they may not agree with the inferences, like, that's fine, right? But we just had a serious conversation. We were like, if we're going to do this, we need to do it in a way that isn't vulnerable to that. And so we redid all the data collection, and we did sort of random assignment of the group size across people, as opposed to within, And we ended up talking to Wayne and he was like, okay, we'll give it a second look because you like fundamentally changed how you did it. And it was one of those situations where I, you know, I'm proud that we did that. It was the right decision to make. And I I don't know who the reviewers were. I know who Wayne is obviously, but like they did us a solid, you know, they were right. And the science got better because of that feedback. 
And so, you know, when, when I think about this paper, I also think about that. I'm grateful for that. Anyway, so in terms of how, how the perceived consequences might change according to group mm-hmm. size, we were looking, as you mentioned, sort of at three categories, right? The first is the usual suspect, which is sanction risk. And we talked about the group hazard hypothesis, but if you read the original Granovetter, when he talks about rioting, I don't know if you guys caught this, he actually talks a little bit about perceived sanction risk, about how you know, riots could be more attractive as more people get involved because the likelihood of you individually getting caught is probably lower, right? Yeah. He talked about it objectively. I don't know how true it is objectively, but we certainly can understand it from a perceptual perspective, right? And so our argument was there's reason to suspect that as the group gets bigger, people may start to think that they're, they are less likely individually to get arrested or to be sanctioned or to be detained by the police, right? We also tried to get into informal costs. So the idea of, you know, we alluded to this earlier, as more people get involved in the act, it's frankly just easier to diffuse responsibility. You can say, well, it wasn't me, it was the group. You know, it's, it's one thing to get into a fight and hurt someone or to, to steal stuff or to damage people's property when you're one of two people. But if you're one of 50 or 75, it becomes easier and less cognitively difficult to like give yourself the out, right? Think about Sykes and Matza, like this is completely in their lane, right? You can also think about as more people get involved, maybe people in your life will be less disappointed in you because like you got caught up in the crowd. It wasn't like you did it on your own. You know, there's sort of less moral wrongness attached to it to a certain extent. And then you also have the, the social rewards. You know, it could be more exciting, you know, to, to be involved in a group of 50 people doing something could just be more exciting than doing it by yourself or doing it with five other people. And then, you know, also the idea of a sense of belonging inclusion, right? Imagine you're, you know, walking through a parking lot and people are getting involved in like, you know, kind of riotous behavior after, you know, a football game or a basketball game. It could feel like you're, you know, you're part of this, right? And as social creatures, a lot of us like that. And so the argument was that the costs and the rewards and the sanctions, received sanctions, would shift in such a way that as more people got involved in a criminal act, it would essentially incentivize crime, right? Because our argument was, okay, if you see more people join as threshold values increase, maybe the reason you see that is because the utility, perceived utility is changing because the underlying costs and risks and benefits, they're changing, right? And so what we wanted to do here was try to tap into this idea of, okay, if we see thresholds, well, maybe the mechanisms underneath are that the choice structuring properties are changing, they're dynamic, you know, and they're, they're at least partly tied to how many people are involved in the act, right? They're not just stable and static, as you said, they're malleable and they change according to this factor, right? And we found some, you know, suggestions that that was the case. So before we get into the findings, you wanted us to remind you about the number of vignettes? That was that about this paper, right? It was tied to that. Okay. It was, you know, initially okay. we you had, had to redo you know, it. Several vignettes. Yeah, we had several vignettes per person. And then yeah. we were like, well, that was, that was, you know, a little bit of a dummy there. It wasn't my smartest move. And then it was basically one vignette per person. Yeah. Okay. With that being said, can you hit us with the main findings associated with this paper on perceptions of risk, costs, and rewards? Sure. So when we asked people to imagine offending with larger groups of people, so just to be clear, the conditions that people got were either like, you know, it's a described a situation, as Jen said, it's either like a property damage or, or a theft situation. And it's like, okay, imagine that you did this and no one else joined you. So that's like your zero condition. 
Imagine that five people started doing this and you joined them. And then it went on from five people to 25, 50, and 75. So we had five conditions, right? So it's a, another hypothetical vignette. And we have the, what's being manipulated here is the size of the group that's engaged, you know, at the time that you join. And what we found is that, you know, under these hypothetical conditions, people tend to anticipate a lower sanction risk. They anticipate feeling less responsible. They anticipate more excitement and they anticipate more social inclusion. And then that's associated with engaging with the act as more people become involved. So we sort of, we thought that this provided some preliminary evidence, again, to suggest that, you know, group size involved in a criminal act may actually incentivize the act, which again, we saw as being consistent with the threshold model, right? The idea that it is interdependent. And one of the reasons why it's interdependent is because as more people get involved, the perceptions of risk, cost, and reward changes in such a way as to invite action. All right. So <laughs> let us move into your most recent article, the 2021 article, Can the Group Disincentivize Offending?, which also taps into one of those future directions that you had outlined in your 2015 threshold model paper, and that's whether there is an opt-out threshold. Specifically, it uses hypothetical vignettes with a sample of students from three different universities to identify opt-out thresholds for fighting theft. Can you describe the idea of the opt-out threshold and how an increasing group of size might contribute to both the decision to join in group crime as well as sort of have the opposite effect and have someone decide to stop engaging in group crime? Yeah. So before I do that, I have to give Zach Rowan credit here because from the initial sort of conversations, he was always like, I think this opt out idea is interesting. And I was always like, yeah, that's fine. We'll talk about it later. Right. <laughs> so, you know, at some point it just became, yeah, you know, you're right. Let, let's actually, you know, think about this. To me, this paper is an interesting turn in the conversation because it introduces the idea that the group doesn't just incentivize criminal action, but it can also disincentivize that. And the reason why I think that's an interesting turn is because if you do work in the peer influence domain, if you do work sort of in groups and crime domain, it's sort of the, this always this inherent assumption that the group facilitates, right? That it's, it's sort of criminogenic. And the idea that, you know, a criminally engaged group might actually disincentivize action, might cause people to stop offending is curious to me because it doesn't line up really with the peer influence literature. Mm -hmm. It only doesn't line up with people who talk about, you know, what are the reasons why people may stop offending, right? So I think sometimes when, when you have a prediction that is not in line with the way that we typically discuss things, I just find that curious. And so it kind of caught my attention. So Granovetter's piece in 78 was really focused on the opt-in threshold, right? Like at what point do I decide to join in the behavior? He wrote two pieces. So it was Granovetter and Song, 1986, 1988. And they really explicitly, now I want to be like, there was, there were a few quotes, sort of a few places where Granovetter hinted at the idea of an opt-out, but it's in these pieces that they really get laid out explicitly and directly. So they incorporated the idea of decision reversals by acknowledging that the behavior of others can also lead to what we call a reverse bandwagon effect, right? So the opt-in threshold can be thought of as a bandwagon effect, right? Like more people join in, you're joining the bandwagon, right? Mm -hmm. A reverse bandwagon really comes from Liebenstein's work in, I think, 1950, and he talked about it as a snob effect, right? So this is a negative relationship between individuals' consumer demand and the overall market demand. So think about it like, 
a bandwagon effect would be, you know, there's a, a new Apple watch and everyone's super excited about it. And as more people, you know, buy it, then more people buy it. Right. So it's this bandwagon effect. It becomes popular and more and more people, you know, buy the product, but you could have a reverse, reverse bandwagon effect where some people are like, as it gets more popular, they're like, I don't want any part of that. Like, you know, I'm unique. I'm sort of, you know, different. And so they're less likely to buy the product because it's popular. Right. So you have the bandwagon effect and you have the reverse bandwagon effect. Typically, they're talked about as if they're between persons differences. Some people respond this way. Some people respond this way. What Granabetter and Song talked about is the idea that the same person can have both, right? So there is an opt-in and an opt-out threshold where it's like they join in and then there could be a point at which, you know, now there's too many people. So now I'm going to leave. I'm going to stop. So basically what they said is individuals act because their initial thresholds are met. But if a group exceeds some still higher portion, then they might change their mind, right? So what that meant to me, first of all, I was just curious, like, does that happen in criminological context? Because if it does, that would be pretty unique. And that would, that would change the conversation. We'd have to start accommodating things that maybe, you know, aren't always discussed. And to me, I saw a little bit of a parallel with, I had done a, a paper a while ago, and part of that paper argued that deviant friends are not always criminogenic because if they're less deviant than you, they could actually reduce your delinquency. So we shouldn't always think that deviant friends are terrible, right? It's not ideal, but we shouldn't view them as universally risky because if they're less deviant than you, it's not a problem or not, a, well, it could be a problem, but like arguably you might actually decline to sort of balance it out, right? And I saw some parallels here that I thought were interesting, but to sort of think about the decision reversal also suggested to me that the overall relationship between groups and crime could be much more complicated, right? So I think the inference in the piece that Kyle and I did is this sense that like this incentivizing, like, you know, character is linear. Like as more and more people join the group, it gets more and more likely that you're going to join too, right? And other models out there that talk about like cascade effects or herding effects they kind of take the same logic. And if you follow it through, it's like, well, just, does it just not stop? Like, does it just continue indefinitely? You know, and at some point it has to stop. Like at at a minimum, you probably have diminishing returns, but what if you have more than diminishing returns? What if you actually have a reversal? And so it was this, this could be really curious, but also we may not, we might be misunderstanding the relationship. The relationship may not be linear. The relationship may be curvilinear right? It may be that if we don't think about it carefully, we may be overestimating how many people are likely to be involved in an act, you know, when it may be less. And to be fair, another thing that got me thinking about this was when that piece with Kyle came out, I got an email from Dan Nagan, who said, you know, hey, Gene, enjoyed reading the piece, you know, good job. But I have a question. Why don't we see like, huge numbers of really large criminal events. Like he was, it wasn't like, you know, here you have to deal with this challenge. It was like, I'm just, you know, this is just something that we should think about. You know, why, why don't we see like more huge riots or why don't things sort of develop? And, you know, part of that could be that you have to have structural opportunity for that. And a lot of times in situations that could devolve into riots, you have a lot of guardians and a lot of opportunities sort of are, are, you know, shut down. But another reason may be that there's opt-out thresholds that like people sort of regulate themselves and the equilibrium of how many people are ultimately involved in the act doesn't, you know, exponentially increase because 
it's dynamic. You're having people coming in, but you're having people going out. So you may have mentioned this already, but do you think that most of this opt out threshold has to do with like the risk involved versus rewards or other things? Or I don't know. I'm just trying to think about why that would exist. I mean, I've talked about this a lot with colleagues and, you know, I want to be clear, whatever I say now is purely speculative because we don't have data on it, but you know, there are certain things that I think start to, like could be that certain things that incentivize like you just plateau, right? At a certain point, like you're not going to feel any less responsible. Like whether it's 50 people or 75 people or hundred people, you're not going to see like major jumps. And I'm even less responsible now than I was 25 people ago. Right. Yeah. I think what may be at work is what you're responsible for might be changing. So if we think about a fight, right? Like if 10 people are involved in a fight versus five people involved in a fight, arguably I'm less responsible because it was 10 versus five, but God, that person's probably going to be a lot, you know, the degree to which they're injured or the degree to which they are harmed could be much higher. And so like feeling like you're less responsible is fine, but what if what you're less responsible for is a much more serious act, right? You know, or it could be that, you know, it just becomes, you start to worry about, you know, you may feel like you're included in something, but now you may feel like if there's a crowd, you're being judged because you're engaging. Like there's a difference between, you know, being involved in an act and people thinking that you're piling on to somebody. Right. So I think, I mean, my strong gut is that, yes, I think that the rewards and the, and the risks and the costs that they're changing. Right. But it's unclear to me. I don't know that, like, I don't know necessarily that they all reverse. I think what could happen is that some plateau, and then some become salient, you know, at some point that weren't beforehand. So I think it gets more complicated. And the question becomes, how do they aggregate in such a way that then my utility changes from thinking it has utility to now it has, it has disutility? So I reverse my decision. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's any one thing that changes, Jen. I think it's like some of them may flatten out. Some of them may still go up. Some new things may come in and be problematic. And then sort of the sum of those start to shift my decision and the balance of what I think is the appropriate act. Yeah. Interesting. There's a fourth paper for you. You're not done yet. <laughs> I see. So that one will be Sanchez and Tussle and Gwen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So what were your findings when it came to opting out of theft and fighting? And were there similarities across the crime type? Were there any differences? Right. So I'm going to say the same thing here that I said before. I think the most interesting and instructive findings are the descriptive ones, right? And this is, this is almost exclusively a descriptive paper, right? Like, and that's what it was meant to be, right? Because the core question is, do these exist, right? Similar to the paper with Zach, but I think even more fundamental because it was just like, this would be curious if we actually observe this. The overall finding is that we found evidence of opt-out thresholds for both the the hypothetical vignette around theft and for the hypothetical vignette around fighting. But there were some differences. So first of all, when it came to the fighting scenario, about 63% thereabouts of the subject said, I'm not going to fight. Like even if all for this, the maximum number was 10 people. So like, even if all 10 people fought this person, and by the way, we set up the scenario in such a way where like, it was justified basically to fight this person. They were like, no, I'm not fighting this person. About 18% said they would fight even if no one else did, right? So they had a threshold of zero. And then about 19% said they would fight only if some other number of people did so first, right? So collectively, we have about 
38, 37% of the sample that says I have an opt-in threshold that comes from zero to one, right? So now the reason I highlight the opt-in threshold first is because you can't have an opt-out threshold unless you first have an opt-in threshold, right? Like right. you can't re you can't reverse your decision if you didn't start to act in the first place, right? So among those people who said, yeah, I'd fight, you know, and that fighting could be by myself or when, you know, five other people do it or when seven other people do it, but it's, it's somewhere in that spectrum. Of those people who opted in, what we find is that, I want to get this number right, I think 68% of them said that they would opt out if more people joined, yeah. right? So they basically said, yeah, I'll join in. And then we followed up and we said, okay, I want you to imagine, like if they said, I would join the fight if three people started and I would join it. And then we'd come back and say, okay, I want you to imagine that three people did it and you joined them, right? If more people continued to join the fight, would you change your mind or would you keep fighting? And 68% of people said, no, I changed my mind if more people did it. And they told us at what point they would change their mind. So, you know, they said they would stop at a certain point. I think it was like on average, like 0.4 or something. So basically once like four to five people joined in, they were like, I'm out, right? So the majority of people who said they would fight also said they would stop if more people joined, right? Which kind of makes sense given what we just talked about in terms of this notion of like, maybe it could perceive, be perceived as piling on. Maybe you start to get worried because you're like, God, this guy's getting the shit beat out of him, right? And like, I don't want to, it's one thing for a few of us to fight him, but now there's four or five people fighting him and that, that's a whole different situation, right? I mean, this is speculation, but like, it sort of it has face validity to it, right? When it came to the theft scenario, we had a situation where more people said they would steal. So about, let me think, like 48% of the subjects, I think, said, I'll steal. Like they're on the threshold spectrum. They have an opt-in. So more people are opting in. But what's curious here is when it comes to the theft, fewer people said they would opt out. So only about 28% of the people who said they would steal said they would change their mind and their threshold for stopping was higher. So to me, the takeaway is, look, we see opt-outs for both, but sort of where they happen and the prevalence of those opt-outs appears to be different across situations. Super preliminary, like this is two specific yeah, yeah. scenarios. Like, you know, they have a lot of characteristics that are not just about crime types. So we got to be careful there. Like, you know, there's a host of contextual variables that are part of these scenarios. So it's very preliminary. But to me, what's interesting is that in both of them, we're seeing evidence of people saying, yeah, I changed my mind and I would opt out because more people joined, right? So walking away from that, I feel like we have preliminary evidence that there are these opt-out thresholds. And what's also interesting is it underscores the idea that if you're going to consider the relationship between group size or groups and, and intentions to you know, offend or perceived utility of an offense, you got to think about the people who are going to be leaving, not just the people who are going to be joining. So for instance, if all we did is consider opt-in thresholds when it came to the fighting scenario, it would look like once you got to a threshold of like 0.9, almost 36% of the sample would be like, yep, I'm in right? So if you only had that information, you'd be like, wow, over a third of the sample would be fighting by the time nine people were involved. But that's misleading. Because if you start to account for the people who would leave, if you start to account for the people who are like, once, like, I'll join at one person, but I'm getting the hell out of here at five. Then what you see is that when you get to point nine, 
the portion of people who would still be involved in the fight is about 12%, not 36%, because you're taking the difference between the opt-in right. and opt-out thresholds. So I think it's a more, it's more complex, but I also think it's more realistic sense of like, what is that relationship between group size or groups engaging in crime and individuals' own intentions to offend or stop offending, right? It also gives you some insights in like, you know, what, what Dan asked me, right? So, you know, why does equilibrium not always become some massive number? Well, in part, because you could have people leaving just as people are joining. And it, yes, it is preliminary, but it also, I think, makes sense, like the differences between the crime types, because fighting violent offense, which fewer people are typically going to engage in more of a person-related offense versus just theft. And so it almost would be easier to leave because less, fewer people are typically involved in it anyway. So it's like, yes, it's more complicated, but it also makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is a really interesting. I mean, clearly we need me different methodologies to comment on this, but even within this methodology, we need like in an ideal world, you have a massive sample and you can do mm -hmm. like 10, 15, 20 different kinds of scenarios, like different sorts of fights, you know, different kinds of, you know, other mm -hmm. property crimes, you know, just sort of different behaviors that you, you feel like you have a better handle on where the crime difference is happening. Could you discuss some of the implications of developing the idea of collective behavior that may be relevant to the academic community, but also general public and the political. Right. Sphere. So you're, you're talking about the idea of like developing this idea of collective behavior further, right? I think if criminology went down this road, frankly, I think we'd be catching up. I don't think we'd be leading the way. I think there's other disciplines that have been working in this domain for decades. And I think it's curious to me that it's not a prominent sort of area of discussion in criminology. You know, I want to be clear that Ross Matsueda, in my view, has kind of been banging this drum for some time and, and doing it effectively, which is not surprising. I think, you know, people who do work kind of in more sociological areas are simply probably more abreast of this, but he also understands the utility that we could gain for the discipline from this. One thing that I think is compelling, and he mentions this, is that we often talk about how do we bridge the micro-macro divide that shouldn't be like Coleman's mm -hmm. boat stuff, right? It shouldn't really be a divide. And you know, thinking about collective behavior is one vehicle to, to sort of start that conversation. And I think that would just be good for the discipline period, right? I think it matters for criminology to have this discussion because we have a long way to go in understanding co-offending, frankly, but also more broadly, that piece by Hoban and Thomas in Criminology and Public Policy, they recently argued, and they're not alone in arguing this, that decisions happen in social context, right? So, we can't have dis discussions about offending decisions devoid of this idea of interdependency. Like, I just think it's irresponsible at this point. We know the importance of social context and we need to make sure that we're integrating it explicitly into our conversation. So even if a crime is committed alone, that doesn't mean that collective behavior wasn't at work, right? Maybe it was a solo event because that person had a threshold of zero and the other people who were around simply didn't have their thresholds met. Right. And so, you know, this is not an explanation. This is not a topic that is only relevant when we talk about stereotypical crowd behavior or stereotypical group behavior. It is potentially relevant when we simply talk about offending decisions. And, you know, that being said, like, I think the peer influence literature has a ton to learn from the rational choice literature. But I also think, like, 
these are natural bedfellows, right? Sort of, you know, talking about the role of peers, talking about group process and talking about decision-making. I know some people would disagree. I think they would talk about sort of, you know, some fundamental assumption differences. My training before I went to graduate school was in psychology, in behavioral psychology. So from that background, these things marry perfectly to me, right? And I know that I'm rare in that perspective, but there's so much growth to be had integrating social context and decision-making. And like some people are doing great work in this area. Like Kyle's doing really good work. Greg Pogarski is doing really good work. Tim Barnum, you know, Shana Herman's like, they're all, they're just doing good work. And I really hope that this, this continues. Now, obviously I said before, I, I tend to be esoteric. So not shockingly, I started with the theoretical implications, right? But I also think there's some practical implications. I mean, we've seen I'm not going to get into specifics. We all, we've seen a lot of examples of crowd behavior that can be troubling, right? This might help us understand how to manage it, how to predict it. I also think the role of social media and facilitating emergent behavior, like, you know, these interactions and thinking about thresholds for different kinds of behavior and, you know, how does it happen in this virtual space, I think is also, it's probably not my bag, but I think it's, it's hugely important for people who want to go down that road. I think there's a lot of implications for thinking about how can this comment on things that are happening on the ground and allow us to better understand and manage that kind of behavior. I actually hadn't even thought necessarily about social media and how that might influence decisions because now it's not just the people that you're with that are seeing you do this. It could be everyone (laughs) if (laughs) what's being recorded goes on YouTube or whatever. So yeah, I feel like that. I don't know how you study that, but that would well, have Well, again, I think that's just we look to other disciplines. You know, they yeah. talk a lot about, you know, if you think about literature on consumer behavior and voting behavior, like it doesn't require that everyone's together in the same space, right. right? It sort of happens in a more amorphous way. And so you could certainly take guidance from, you know, people who have already walked down that path and continue to steal from our friends, right? Yeah, right. Back to the idea. There we go. <laughs> All right. Well, that's all of our main questions for you. Do you have anything else that you'd like to add? No, I just like to say that I think it's great that you guys are doing this. It's nice to see Jen again, who was a member of the JRCD workshop and did a great job. And so it's just, I appreciate that you guys, I mean, this is no small amount of work that you guys are taking on and it's a service to the discipline. So thank you. And I apologize for, I'm sure I will be the most boring podcast, but so be it. You know, I think it's low, really interesting. Low standards so. of COVID. So low standards. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again so much for coming on and sharing with us and speaking with us. Is there anything that you would like to plug? Anything coming out soon related to this? I know this last paper we just talked about just came out, what, a week or so ago? So that is I new. I think thereabouts. Yeah. I have to say one of the sort of copy editors, managing editors, Matthew at University of Albany was excellent and tolerated my questions and my, I needed him to help me with an Excel matter. So big, big ups to him. But no, I mean, one of the things you said you were going to ask me is, you know, where can people find you? I am not on social media. So you can find me in College Park, Maryland, or you can find me if, if ASC goes off, which it's planned to, but you know, these days, everything's uncertain. You can find me there. The only thing I want to plug is something that's you know, well, my colleagues are on, some of my colleagues are on Twitter and social media. So I know Zach is on, Jess is on. So go look at their stuff and look at their work. And all I would say is, you know, I think JRCD has Twitter. So pay attention to JRCD, look at some articles coming out there. But other than that, you all have enough on your plate already trying to manage 
what's going to be, what's an elegant way I can say this, an interesting semester. So, yeah, very true. All right. Well, thank you again. My pleasure. The Criminology Academy is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The Crim Academy. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please rate, review, and subscribe. Alternatively, let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website, thecriminologyacademy.com. And lastly, share the Crim Academy episodes with your friends and family.